which is don't get furious, get curious. And that is the puzzle mindset. So whether it's, uh, you know, literal puzzles or little personal puzzles about your marriage or work or the big societal puzzles, that mindset, I think, of deep curiosity and willingness to change and uh, creativity, ingenuity, all these are part of the puzzle of my, puzzler mindset. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. What if you had no problems? What if you had instead puzzles? Well, my guest today, AJ Jacobs, is a man who's in the puzzle business. He can help you solve puzzles. He can help you live a more meaningful, happier, healthier life by cultivating something he calls the puzzle mindset. He talks about it in this interview and in his most recent book, The Puzzler, one man's quest to solve the most baffling puzzles ever from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life. AJ, as his Wikipedia page explains, sees his life as a series of experiments in which he immerses himself in a project or a lifestyle for better or for worse, and then he writes about what he's learned. We talked about his book before The Puzzler when he was a guest on this show back in 2019. He had written a book called Thanks a Thousand, in which he wanted to thank and he embarked on a quest to thank every person who had a hand in making his morning cup of coffee a possibility, from the barista to the roaster, to the truck driver, to the warehouse operators, to the grower, of course. It's a fascinating and a fun book that helps us to live with more gratitude. The Puzzler helps us to live with more curiosity, more flexibility. I love this book. It's full of riddles. It's full of questions. It's full of puzzles, new ways of looking at things in our life that can help us to not be so frustrated by them, but as he describes, as AJ talks about in this interview, to become more curious and less furious. AJ has given four TED Talks that have been viewed more than 10 million times. He contributes to the New York Times. He's a commentator for NPR. He's also an editor-at-large at Esquire Magazine and a columnist for Mental Floss. You can learn more about AJ at ajjacobs.com. You can learn about this book at thepuzzlerbook.com, and you can find AJ on Twitter at AJ Jacobs. Okay, with that, I hope you enjoy and benefit from and find new, more exciting and empowering ways of looking at the world because of AJ's wisdom. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with my friend, AJ Jacobs. AJ, welcome back to the School for Good Living. I am so pleased to be here. Thank you for having me, brilliant. Yes, it's truly my pleasure. Because you've been a guest on the show before, and I have asked you what's life about before, I want to start this conversation with a different question, which is, what are puzzles about? Well, to me, I'm a puzzle obsessive. I am very pro-puzzle, uh, and I always have been. And to me, they're about the best parts of being human, which is ingenuity, um, creativity, curiosity, all that good stuff. And... Uh, and I know there are people who say that they are puzzle hesitant or puzzle phobic, but I truly believe there is a puzzle type for every, anyone. And I believe that life is a series of puzzles. So it actually ties back to your original question about what, what is life. 
life to me is a series of puzzles and and my all of my books are about the puzzle so the puzzle of how do we be grateful i wrote a book about gratitude puzzle of how do we what is the what is the importance of religion if any that was a, another puzzle that i tried to figure out so i am a big fan yeah me too me too. And I'm reminded of something I once heard Timothy Leary say that the universe is an intelligence test. <laughs> oh, I love that. Where he might have said the universe is a puzzle, you know. Right. Well, but I do it, love, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, 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 go ahead. Uh, but uh, Quincy Jones, the great musician, has a quote that I love where he says, I don't have problems, I have puzzles, mm. which I think is a great way to look at life because yeah. problems. Uh, it sort of brings up the idea of they're intractable, they're horrible, but puzzles are like, all right, let's roll up our sleeves and see if we can solve this and maybe even have a little fun and play while doing it. Yeah, I, I really like that. And you've written a book, The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, from Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. And in this book, which I love so much, I was we were talking before recording. I was sharing about how I, I was sharing this with my mom last night, the puzzles and riddles and some of the questions that you invite. But you make a very bold claim early on that I happened to agree with, but the skeptic <laughs> in me was like, wait a minute. And here's what you write. That. You say, I have come to the conclusion, I have come to a conclusion that might that may seem overly bold, but I'm going to try to convince you of it by the time you finish this book. The conclusion is that puzzles can save the world or at least help save the world. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I truly do. And, uh, and perhaps it's a little bit of a rationalization for having spent thousands of hours doing puzzles over my life, because I love all kinds. I love crosswords and Sudoku and uh, jigsaws, you name it. Uh, I believe that what we just mentioned, this idea of curiosity is the only thing that can save the human species, and that we have to um, look at the world through the lens of curiosity. And that's the way we're going to solve the big problem, not just like little personal problems, which I think is also key, like, you know, who should sit next to whom at a, a dinner party, but also the big problems like uh, poverty and uh, the culture wars and the environment. And the way I, one example I give is uh, I have really tried to change the way I approach conversations with someone who disagrees with me on politics or whatever. So say I, I'm having a conversation, the way I used to do it was almost as a war, a debate, a war of words. I'm going to berate them and I'm going to convince them to come to my side. You're going to win. That, what? You're going to win. There's going to be a I'm going to win. Yeah, yeah, it was a zero sum. And I, that rarely worked. I don't think it ever worked. I think it just polarized both of us. I got angrier and, and that other person got angrier. So instead, I've tried to reframe conversations like that as a puzzle. So the puzzle is, why do I believe what I believe? Why does she believe what she believes? Why, what evidence is there for each of our, what evidence could change my mind if it was presented to me? Uh, what is our common, what do we have that is common ground and where do we go from here? All of these are fascinating puzzles and it turns it into a more of a cooperative adventure as opposed to a stressful battle of words. And that I find it's not only made my life better because I'm not 
angry and yelling when I talk to people who I disagree with. Uh, I think it's more productive. I've been able to, you know, find these interesting common ground and ideas. And, and so that is the kind of attitude when I say puzzles can save the world. That's kind of what I'm talking about. And just one addendum, which is in some cases, literal puzzles have helped save the world. And I'm thinking of in 1942, the uh, London Telegraph newspaper ran a crossword puzzle, very hard crossword puzzle. And they said, if you can solve this in 12 minutes or less, please get in touch with this number. And that number turned out to be the code breaking arm of the uh, British intelligence, the Bletchley Park, you might have heard of, where they broke Alan Turing and, and his co-workers broke the Nazi Enigma code. So you could argue that in that case, puzzles literally saved the world. Wow. You know, and uh, yeah, there's so much in what you just said, that, that thing about like getting curious and making space for another person's belief or their perspective and so forth. Uh, what's that saying about a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still? <laughs> that, that idea. I love that. I hadn't heard that. Yeah. And I also love because it, it goes along with rhyming wisdom, which I've, uh, I think is a, a fun little subgenre. I heard one yesterday from a friend. Um, compare leads to despair, compare and despair, which is like, if you're always comparing, oh, that person has more money, that person has a better life, they're, they, you know, their house is more beautiful. That is not the road to happiness, quite the opposite. Yeah, no, no doubt. And, and that idea of making space for someone else's beliefs and, and worldview and getting curious about it, there's, I see so much value in that in my role as a coach, because if we don't do that with others, we're very unlikely to do that with ourselves. Mm. And as I think we all know, what's the this famous saying, um, Derek, who's the guy that did CD baby, Tim Ferriss is interviewed, who talks about if, if more like flogging ourselves, if beating ourselves up was the answer to anything, we'd all already have six pack abs and be billionaires. Right? <laughs> it's, but it's that same mindset where we don't allow others and we don't get curious about why we do what we do, or even why we think what we think that we do cause a lot of unhappiness. And I really love what you're saying. And, and even the idea of this a little bit philosophical, but anyone who knows me, that's no surprise. I have a teacher who once described love as making space for others to be all the ways they are and all the ways they are not. Hmm. And if we don't have that curiosity or that willingness, our love is probably not likely to be very deep. So yeah, that's I wonderful. I, I love what you say. And and I totally agree. You have to be curious with your own beliefs. And, and that's another huge virtue that I talk about in the puzzler, because to solve little puzzles like crosswords and, uh, and riddles, you have to have a flexible mind. Cognitive flexibility is so huge and you can't fall in love with your hypothesis. So on the, the smaller level, it's like, I remember there was a crossword I once did where the clue was, um, this is the result of a bad trip. And it was a nine letter word starting with F. And I was like, all right, I know with LSD trip, it's flashback. And I was so convinced I was right. But the answer was not flashback. The answer was face plant because oh, wow. it's a different kind of trip. <laughs> yeah. And, but I was so locked in that I wasted an hour of my life because nothing was working. Wow. And I think that that's a good metaphor for the way we should look at 
any belief in our life, we shouldn't we shouldn't have total skepticism. We should, I think science and, uh, and experts play a huge role, but we should be flexible. We shouldn't just because we believe something once uh, doesn't mean we always have to believe it. It's okay to change your mind. Yeah, absolutely. And you even have a term in the book. I love that you, you uh, gave me and, and other readers about the way of the eraser to embrace mm. the way of the eraser. Thank you. I'm glad you like that. Or the delete key. I do. I do work more on the computer than, but I am a huge fan of the eraser because there are some people who say, oh, I do Sudoku or crosswords and and pen. And that's what real men do. And and I just think that's so deluded because it's all about flexibility and being able to change your mind and, and probabilistic thinking. I am a huge fan of that. so, you know, nothing, very few things, some things are, but very few things are on off. Yeah. Most of life is on a dimmer. So just, you know, in terms of whether it's predicting the future, just saying, you know, I think it's, it's highly likely this will happen, or there's a 70% chance this will happen. Even in my own private life, I might take it too far because my wife will say, well, what time are you going to be home? Well, there's a 60% chance I'll be home at five. There's a 30% chance I'll be home at six. But I just think it's a very good way to start thinking. We all have to start thinking more, less black and white and more probabilistically. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Well, and, and I think this is probably part of a larger uh, way of thinking, way of being that you, you call the puzzle mindset to mm. adopt a puzzle mindset. And, and there's also then of course, puzzle solving strategies and, and some of these things that can become more tactical and maybe we've covered it pretty well already, but when you talk about the puzzle mindset, what do you mean? Is there anything you would add to what we've already discussed? Well, it's a lot about that idea of being curious, of being flexible. Uh, I actually, speaking of rhyming wisdom, I love this phrase that I got from a child psychologist, but I believe it applies not just to parenting, but every aspect, which is don't get furious, get curious. And that is the puzzle mindset. So whether it's, uh, you know, literal puzzles or little personal puzzles about your marriage or work or the big societal puzzles, that mindset, I think of deep curiosity and willingness to change and uh, creativity, ingenuity, all these are part of the puzzle of puzzle or mindset. Yeah. There's a French thinker I once read who said um, to understand all is to forgive all Mm. And that idea that if we're willing to go beyond what we see or what we think we see and and ask questions or consider from another point of view, maybe we'd be a little more forgiving. (laughs) That is, that's a fascinating point. And I do think forgiveness is a hugely underrated value. in today, I I think I've seen in my lifetime, a, a, big dip in forgiveness. And I think it's a problem. And a friend of mine who's an Episcopalian minister, uh, no Lutheran, sorry. And you might want to have her on at some point, Nadia Boltz Weber. Have you ever heard of her? No. She's fantastic. She's like a highly tattooed Lutheran. Uh, I think she's a bishop now, but anyway, she's writing a book about forgiveness and how important it is because it is seems like an unforgiving society we're in now. And I think she told me, someone told me a great quote by Nelson Mandela, which is, I, I, I may, I hope I won't butcher it, but something like resentment is 
like um, drinking poison and hoping that it hurts your enemies, mm -hmm. which I think is so true. Like forgiveness is not just good for the other person. It's good for you. Like you will be happier if you're more forgiving. Yeah, that's, I, I certainly think so. And, and I once heard um, Gandhi had said, we won't be punished for our unforgiveness. We'll be punished by it. And I think oh, right. you know, exactly what you're saying there, but this book, I, I love, and I realize, you know, that maybe this is, it's not exactly an example of apophenia, <laughs> but I mm. love if you'll talk about that as a phenomenon. But what I was going to say before that is about how, you know, in your book, it's a book of puzzles. It's a book of questions and riddles and problems and things like that. And it's, and maybe that's all it is, but as we're discussing, I love that there really are life lessons or ways of being that we can look at. And, and what I want to talk about is also humility. So I'm just going to plant that seed and we'll come back to it. But right. will you also talk about this, about this term? Again, you introduced me to apophenia. What is it? How can puzzles help us see it? And why might we be uh, wise to be wary of it in, in our own right. lives? Well, this I learned during research from a friend of mine who's a psychologist, and it is a hugely important concept that's become even more important recently with with social media and the eye apophenia is the phenomenon of seeing a pattern where none exists and for instance uh people who see the virgin mary's face in a piece of french toast that is an example of apophenia i mean maybe it's there i i i'm just a little i've got a, a kernel of popcorn by the way yeah. that we kept we put in our little curio cabinet i'm telling you it, it looks exactly like a teddy bear <laughs> it's so funny. It's not, it's not a religious figure, but it's a, it's a teddy bear. Is it an omen? Are you going to join a religion of teddy bears? <laughs> Maybe anyway. we need to buy more beanie babies or something. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, so pattern finding is a double-edged sword because as humans, we are wired to find patterns and that's very important. You know, that's how we knew to be scared of snakes. That's how science works by finding patterns. So patterns Yes, if they are real, are huge. But the problem is we are too programmed to find patterns. So we find patterns where none exist, like the, um, the French toast example. And I think we've seen a rise in apophenia. Uh, a lot of conspiracies, there are real conspiracies out there, but a lot of them are apophenia. People putting together dots that don't go together, putting together puzzle pieces that don't fit. So I really believe QAnon for instance, is, is a, one of the darkest examples of apophenia. They've found all of these little random data points, and they are convinced that this proves that Tom Hanks is a cannibal, uh, uh, cannibal pedophile or whatever they believe. And no amount of evidence will dissuade them. So apophenia, as I say, the, the best weapon against it is to keep this flexible, open mind, and to be open to evidence that disproves your belief. And that to me, uh, Daniel, Daniel Kahneman, the great Nobel winning uh, economist talks about how he loves to be wrong, proven wrong, because it's the only way that he knows that he's in pursuit of the truth. So that kind of mindset to me is the way we battle apophenia. Yeah. And I know it can be uncomfortable to, for us as human beings to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something powerful about certainty. I once heard Tony Robbins say that the greatest human need in the world is certainty. 
Mm. Like overall, I was like, that's amazing in all its various forms, whether that's from thinking we have financial security or job security, or this person will never leave me or whatever, that we're constantly seeking security. And I could see that. And yet it's amazing that there are people who will say, this is actually my greatest joy to be proven wrong. And when we <laughs> remember like, and this is a little bit uncomfortable for me, but there's something also liberating and exciting about it. That like the scientific method, that think like truths can never, at least as I understand it, right. Truths can never be proven. They can mm. only be disproven. Right. Right. It's pretty amazing. Actually. Yeah, no, I mean, it is, it is a, an acquired taste, this, uh, this uncertainty, but I do think the world would be better if more people were able to sort of live in it. And you talk a lot about in your writings and podcasts about sort of, uh, uh, you know, this uh, mindfulness. And I think that this is part of mindfulness being okay with uncertainty. And just to throw in one other great uncertainty quote, and again, I'm going to butcher the exact quote, but it was the philosopher Bertrand Russell who said, the whole problem with the world is that the idiots are so sure of themselves and all the, all the smart people are so filled with doubt. Yes. And that really is. That, I mean, that sums up a large part of our problem. Yeah, no doubt. Well, talking about you know the puzzle mindset and some of the qualities that we can cultivate that can help us to live more enjoyably and our relationships to work probably better than they otherwise would and things like that. The one that I mentioned just a moment ago uh, humility that you talk about. You even, I, I thought it was really interesting that you describe at least in one place in your book, epistemic humility. Am I, am I, I love that phrase. Do I have yeah. that right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a little pretentious and I actually used it like eight times in my book. And my friend was like, you got to cut it down to like three or four mentions. Cause it is just a pretentious phrase, but it's also, I think a very important phrase. And it just means, uh, it's, you know, sort of a fancy way of just saying that we should be humble about what we know and, and just what we were talking about before, that we could be proven wrong, that, that we aren't certain of anything, um, but we should keep being curious and trying to find the truth. So to me, that is, that is the key. And, and I think that, yeah, the problem is social media does not reward epistemic humility Cable TV news does not reward epistemic humility. You get ratings for saying, uh, you know, the America is uh, is on the verge of collapse, and I'm a hundred percent certain if we don't do X, then it will, you know, it'll be the end of the world. That gets rewarded because that's, as you say, we're kind of addicted to certainty. Yeah. So it's it's developing this taste for humility and, and uncertainty. But I yeah. just wanted to, you know, I'm a fan of gratitude. So I just wanted to thank you because I loved our, this is my second appearance, as you know, mentioned. And, uh, and our first one, you gave me um, a great riddle and I have a chapter on riddles. And I actually, I believe I had your riddle in one of the drafts and it was cut just for space, but I still think of it often. So thank you. And, and I, if I say it, I'm probably going to get it wrong, but if you want to say it or include it in the show notes. I'm yeah. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't even remember where I heard that, that riddle, but it's one that, um, that I've enjoyed. And I imagine it's medieval, probably somewhere in the mid ages. Um, this is what is greater than God, but worse than the devil. Poor men have it. Rich men need it. Dead men eat it. But if you eat it, you will die. 
that's good. I mean, I happen to know the answer because you told me, but, and I, I sort of got it with some hints from you, but the answer is nothing, nothing, yeah. nothing. If you eat nothing, you will die. And uh, yes. Yeah, and animals. one of the yeah. strategies that you talk about in your book of solving problems or um, puzzles about breaking things down. Mm. Right. Because my experience is I relate that to people. And I think there's those six lines. There's kind of two pairs. Most people will ask all these big questions. They'll say these big things, time and space and, you know, like this, but if you just put the last thing, what is greater than God? Mm, it's interesting right. how chunking it down. Many people will go, Oh, well, nothing, you know? Right. Right. Oh yeah. That is a huge, a huge strategy that I use in puzzles and in life. You got to break. Even writing this book was breaking down. Uh, into chunks. Because if I tried to conceive it of as one mo monolithic uh, work, then it's just so overwhelming. And instead, just to break it down into chunks, I'm going to have a chapter on jigsaws, a chapter on rebuses, a chapter on mazes, and then it becomes manageable. Yeah. And in, in fact, I think I'll probably transition us. Um, I do want to ask you about this really elegant thing that I've thought, I don't have any tattoos, but if I got a tattoo, <laughs> I might get this as uh, something the the late Japanese puzzle maker, Maki Kaji expressed to you in a beautiful and poetic way. Will yes. you talk about what he shared with you? I love this. I went to a, a lecture by him and he's called he, he, he died uh, a few months ago, sadly, but he was called the godfather of Sudoku. He didn't invent Sudoku, but he brought it to a wide audience. And he, he's a puzzle maker in Japan. And he summed up all puzzles with three symbols, just three characters. The question mark, the arrow, an arrow pointing forward, and then the exclamation point. And he explained the question mark is when you see something and you're baffled, the arrow is the, the, uh, the creativity phase where you're coming up with solutions, you're struggling, you're trying things out. And then the exclamation point is that aha moment that we all want. So I loved that. But then I loved it even more because he added some extra wisdom, which is that the key to puzzles and not just puzzles, the key to life is embracing the arrow that you may never get to that exclamation point in life or in the puzzle. So you have to enjoy the arrow. It's sort of, to me, a more poetic way of saying, enjoy the journey or, or you, you know, enjoy the climb up the mountain. You may never make it to the summit. Uh, but I thought it was beautiful. So I do try to enjoy the arrow knowing we don't always make it to the exclamation point. Yeah, I think there's actually a lot of spiritual truth in this where, you know, first I think of Gandhi, another saying I once read attributed to him. Uh, he said, allegedly, <laughs> <laughs> full effort is full victory. Mm, that's right? nice. so, yeah. And then and then coaches, um, I don't know if it was John Wooden or another coach who will say the score takes care of itself. Oh, right? that's a good one too. And yeah. so this idea that many spiritual teachers have talked about working while renouncing the fruits of our labor, that mm. you know, the morrow, take no thought for the things of the morrow, for the morrow will take care of itself, kind of thing, and then engaging in as cliche as it is in the journey, in the process. Right. You know? I think in that little three symbol thing, there's, there's so much beauty and I think truth and wisdom to be found. Agree. I was a huge fan and I love your idea of the tattoo. I agree. I, I don't have any, but uh, if I did, 
I might be if you, if you do it, I'll do it. <laughs> Actually, I take that back because my wife hates tattoos. <laughs> I yeah. don't mind them, but my wife hates them. Well, it is. I, that's another true. I, I think happy wife, happy life. <laughs> ah, and it rhymes. Yes, Excellent. Yeah. rhyming wisdom. Well, let me let me just ask. I have two two more questions about the puzzler, and maybe a few more will pop up. But one question is, um, what? Well, I'll take them in order. The first one is, how do you think, or how do you, like, if you know, um, how might your life be different because you wrote this book, because you invested so much time in this? How, how do you think it might be different or how is your, your life already different because you wrote this book? Well, I'm going to break it down into chunks because we talked about that. So one, I do believe it's made me happier. Gratitude, as I say, gratitude and curiosity are my two favorite uh, drives, emotions. So it really helped with my curiosity. It helped with my outlook of being less angry and more curious. Uh, so I think psychologically it was good. Number two, uh, the book is a combination of of history of puzzles uh, and puzzles themselves. There, there are dozens of puzzles for you to fill out. But it's also my adventures immersing myself in these wonderfully eccentric puzzle communities. So uh, the jigsaw fanatics. I went to Spain and I competed in the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship as with my family as Team USA. And it was a disaster in one sense because we came in second to last. I mean, we were not we were not meant to be there. These people practice hours every day. But it was also wonderful because I got to meet this lovely community. And it was almost like the United Nations. It was all uh, countries from all over the world, and they had this bond. Uh, so being able to, A, meet all these wonderful communities, and B, see the importance of community, uh, which I think you've talked about many times, the, oh. you know, having a community is just important to our happiness as humans. Uh, and three, um, I think it actually made me a slightly better problem solver, maybe more than slightly, because I learned all of these uh, tools of how to solve puzzles, but that can be applied to far more than puzzles. And one of them is one we talked about and, you know, breaking down into chunks or being super flexible or looking at something upside down. All of these are important tools I've, I've honed. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that reminds me about something I think you suggest in the book where either you said this or someone you interviewed talked about that perhaps part of the reason as humans, we're so fascinated by puzzles is that they're kind of a practice for life. Right. right? And that they really can help us to live better, to survive better, and not just in picking up laundry, although that's you know, <laughs> one sometimes or maintaining our car or whatever. But this idea also that you said recurred is a kind of a theme among puzzle, um, puzzle fanatics of bringing order to chaos. Yes. Right? Will you right. say more about what you discovered about this? Like, cause maybe it's our way of just bringing some, some organization to our little corner of the universe, but what, what was your experience in, or what did you discover about ordering chaos in puzzles? Right. Well, uh, just to back up to the first part of what you said that I think we are wired assume on the scientists I talked to talk about, we're wired to solve problems and, and puzzles and problems are cousins. Uh, because, of course, the first puzzle was how do we find something to eat or how do we find a mate? And and it's not just humans. Uh, it's 
Yeah, even slime molds can solve puzzles. If you put food at, I solve mazes. If you put food at the end of a maze, a slime mold will actually find its way. Wow. So it's cross species across cultures this desire to find, and um, and I think that puzzles are almost the platonic ideal of a problem because you have this one solution in life. The solutions are never so neat. You'll have like, you know, five different suboptimal uh, solutions and you have to figure out which one is best, which is a whole other puzzle. But in puzzles, if they're well constructed, you only have one. And it's that order out of chaos that I think is built into us. It's wired into us. And it is, it's very, you know, I think we live in a chaotic world uh, and it seems even more chaotic than it is because of social media. Uh, and so having this one little area that you can control is very satisfying. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I think it's, I think that that is a, is a good benef mental benefit of puzzles. I also think though, even a, uh, there's a meditative benefit to some puzzles like jigsaw puzzles. I know you like meditation. So like this idea of just, it doesn't take that much thought to do a jigsaw puzzle, but it can be so calming and relaxing. Oh, absolutely. And I love what uh, one of the people you talked to said about a jigsaw puzzle won't solve all your problems, but it's a problem you can solve. <laughs> exactly. So that's the order out of chaos thing, right? Yeah. And, and then the other thing about the meditative, I didn't know this. So I was grateful to learn about labyrinths and labyrinths can absolutely have this kind of quality. Will you talk about that? Oh yeah. Well, this was fascinating because I wanted to do a chapter on mazes. So I went to the gathering of the labyrinth society, which is this a couple hundred people in Maryland who it's got together. Thing. Every year. I can, it's yeah. like something off the office or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was fascinating. Right. And unexpected because I got there and I explained, I'm a writer. I'm doing a book on puzzles. And they said, well, you're in the wrong place, buzzer. This is, labyrinths are not puzzles. In fact, they're the opposite of puzzles because a puzzle is a, a maze and a labyrinth they learned are totally different. According to them, mazes are uh, you have a choice, go to, I go right or left and it, you get lost and then you solve it. Labyrinths, no choice. It is um, just a spiral and you one walk in one way and walk out the other. There's no choice. And they said, that is the beauty of labyrinths. There, there is, it's, it's a walking meditation and there is no choice and it's stress-free. And one guy told me, labyrinths, God created labyrinths to heal the trauma caused by mazes. So he's quite anti-maze. I liked mazes and labyrinths, uh, but he, uh, so anyway, this, there's this movement of people and it combines an interesting group. You know, there's, it's religious Christians. Some are uh, sort of new agers. Some are psychedelic fans uh, and they, but they all love this walking meditation that is the labyrinth. That idea that there's like one path. I mean, on the one hand, that's like, oh, that sounds dogmatic. But right. in another way, I love that, you know, the idea that there's one true path for each of us to mm. find and walk. There's that's something really nice. cool about that. And I like, well, I, oh, I didn't mean oh, to interrupt. I, I was just going to say that, that I was surprised to learn that these weren't like labyrinths aren't necessarily all tall walls, right? Some of them were, you could just see low 
I think most of them are just rocks arranged or stones in in a grass or even a tarp. And it's this and they put them up in, you know, near hospitals or um, rehab centers or churches. And it's a huge thing. And and you can go on the Internet and find the closest labyrinth to you. And I will say I I walked a few labyrinths as part of my research and I I liked them. They were they were meditative. I felt like, you know, I'd had just had a nice glass of wine or something. But uh, some people report that it's like scales falling from the eyes, like it is a mind blowing experience. I didn't experience that personally, but I do what going back to what you said, I, I think there are two parts of life that are equally important. One is this freedom of choice, which is, I think, important to our happiness. But then we can get overwhelmed and there is something to the the freedom from choice, this paradox of the paradox of choice, that we have too many choices. So the labyrinth is sort of addressing that part of our nature. Yeah, that's great. So then the other, the last question before I would gently transition us (laughs) to (laughs) an exploration of writing and creativity as it relates to the puzzler is um, I know we've covered so much already about this, but what, if anything, haven't we talked about related to this book that you want to talk about, or you think the listener might enjoy hearing? I think one thing uh, that I loved and I did touch on it, but just that puzzles are a uniting force. Uh, And I think all shared activities are, it doesn't have to be puzzles, but the idea of doing something together is so important. Uh, And uh, some people think puzzles, oh, you know, you sit in the corner alone and work on a crossword. But most of the puzzlers I met, it's all about working with people or even comparing and sort of being like, you know, I, I did Wordle faster than you. And speaking of Wordle, I saw the inventor of Wordle. And for those who don't know, it's a newish game, uh, a word game where you have to guess five letters and uh, and they tell you which letters are right and wrong. And it's caught on like crazy. It was like an obsession. And now there are about 8,000 Wordle spinoffs. So Wordle for art, Wordle for movies, Loodle, which is naughty words. Uh, So I love, I'm a fan of Wordle, but the guy who invented it told a a wonderful story that almost seems like it's, uh, you know, made for a screenplay, which is that there was a man who, a gay man who had been ostracized by his family. They were not on speaking terms because the family was very conservative in that way. And, but they all love Wordle. So Wordle is sort of the bond that they've rebuilt their relationship on. And Mm -hmm. I think that is a a wonderful thought. And, and we need more of these combined activities uh, in our splintered society to, to reform these bonds. Yeah, I'm with you there. And I too love Wordle. I play, I, I don't know how I missed it, but one day I missed a cycle, like one day of sleeping and waking. I just got busy or something and I broke my streak. I was almost to triple digits. <laughs> wow. That's impressive. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I, I forget occasionally. I have to say I'm more obsessive about another puzzle called the spelling bee. I don't know if you've ever played that. I have, uh, I haven't subscribed to the times yet. So then they're like subscribe to get to the genius mode or whatever. I'm I like, know, they are really, and it's a lot $40 a year. Yeah. They, it's worth so it. what is your opening word on Wordle? I don't use one consistently. I will go, I will do the thing where I will look around a room. And then if I see a five letter word, I'll use it. My wife has opening words 
but I don't, I'm not consistent. And I've had somewhere I'll get on, on a word I spotted randomly. I've had three green. Yeah. No way. But listen, I respect that a hundred percent. I think we should all be doing that more experimenting with our first word. I'm a hypocrite because I have the same first word and I, I don't like it. I'm, I, I feel shameful because it's not even a good word. It's the, as soar, S-O-A-R-E, which is a young hawk. And I got it because I read an article that an artificial intelligence analyzed thousands of words and decided this was the best word to work. But it's just, it doesn't feel good. I think I, I'm, you inspired me. I'm going to try to change my word every day. <laughs> or yeah, try the, the approaches, right? Because um, I, I have gone through periods where I've used consistent words like for a while. And by the way, I, I know S is obviously very common. I don't like to use S right away because when I get the fewer letters left, the S will often help me if I have a four letter that I can make it five. But, um, I, my wife's word right now, she loves ghost. Mm, and then the other one that I've loved in the past is audio. Cause you get oh, yeah, three of the five cool. vowels. Yes. Yes. That is nice. But it's, uh, it's, it's, and you it's probably fun. have some audio equipment. You're a podcaster. A little bit so around. You look around and say, Oh, audio. Yeah. Well, in the book, you talk about your love of spelling bee. And this is, this is actually, I think a great segue to the creativity part, because I understand you do the New York times crossword puzzle every night before you go to bed, which I didn't know. So thank you for telling me this, that you can do it online. Of course you can do it online. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. I, I do prefer it uh, just because you can uh, erase it. You know, I love the eraser, but the delete key is even easier than the eraser. Yeah. The challenge for me of doing the crossword puzzle online would be the temptation to Google which I know it's okay if that's your own rule for yourself. Right. I understand you do Wordle and the, the times crossword puzzle before bed and the, and that spelling bee will sometimes wake you up at like three or four in the morning. Right. right? This is not healthy. Yeah. (laughs) So my question for you about creativity is I think it's great to have routines and it's great to do things that light us up and that love that we love because that I believe can, that passion can over, flow into our work, right? How do you not allow what could be considered distractions? Like, how do you walk the line of doing what you love without it, let, without letting it get in the way of your, your work and your productivity? Oh, that's a lovely thought. Well, I am, I do try to be disciplined with, you know, I'm going to, whether it's the 25 minutes, five minutes, the what's that Pomodoro method. So I do try to have my little uh, treats like the spelling bee in those five minutes. I will also say, I love what you say about the tension between routines and total creativity. And sometimes I think they can actually cross over like there's for, so for instance, and I, I think I might've mentioned this on our first podcast, but I still, every day I have a list of things I do in the morning. And one of them is to spend 15 minutes just brainstorming ideas and they could be article ideas or book ideas, but often they're just random. Like you, I'll look around the room and I'll say, Oh, I outside, I see a snowman. And what can I do creatively with that? How can I play with it? You know, what if it was a snow person or snow, uh, non-binary or, you know, so just like taking it and twisting it in, in all different directions. And I'm, 99.5% of these ideas will never see the light of day, but I love, 
you know, as you know, my obsession with keeping the mind flexible and supple. And, and I think this is really good exercise for that. So that's a routine in one way that leads to um, freedom and, and lack of routine in a, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> that's awesome. You tell me about, um, I understand that you were writing a different book before you wrote the puzzler that you got about three months into something. You obviously put a lot of work and, and a lot of thought into, and yet you were willing to, I don't know that you abandoned it. That might be too strong a word, but you ceased work on that. Right. Can you talk about what it was like to choose a project, begin and then for whatever reason, choose a different project, kind of mid-flight. Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the lessons of the puzzler is, as I say, pivoting is important and create, you know, not being attached. So the book I was, I got a contract to write and I spent three months on it, as you say. It's actually, I think, a very interesting topic and I still am interested in it. It was all about this epistemology, this how do we know what we know? And especially in this alleged post-truth world and fake news and social media, how do I know the most basic thing? How do I know the world is round, not flat? How do I know that my wife loves me? She says she does, but I, I'm not 100%. I'm not in her mind. How do I know that, uh, that the New York Times is more reliable than Fox News or Newsmax? And uh, so I was going to dive in and try to find out how do we find the truth? Uh, and I, I spent three months on it and it was fascinating, but it was also extremely stressful. I felt overwhelmed. I wasn't sure the book would help the problem, uh, of post-truth. Cause I was worried people might read it and be like, oh yeah, it's just a mess. I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to believe whatever I believe, which is not helpful. So I, uh, I was miserable and my agent, uh, so I'm very grateful to him. He said, he said, well, why don't you, instead of being miserable, try to do a book about something you love? He knew I loved puzzles. And I said, okay, well, let me think about that. And, uh, and luckily, not only did I love them, but I do think that they're important. And I begged my editor and she's like, actually, yeah, I, I might like this better. So uh, it was stressful before I got it approved. But and it's uh, you know a little stressful that I wasted uh, scare quotes around that um, wasted uh, three months. Uh, but I don't see it as a total waste. I learned a lot, and as you say, I may still go back to it in some form, just not that exact form. Well, I hadn't realized that you actually had a contract for that book. Oh yeah, no, it was called Fact Checking My Life, and I still want to do something with it. It's just because it is a super important topic and we mentioned it earlier a lot, but oh. I, I, don't, I don't know. I haven't, for me, structure is everything. Structure is so crucial. Once I have a structure for a book. Uh, so my book that we talked about last time was gratitude and the structure was thank a thousand people. And I was even able to structure it more by like grouping a thousand people who, who helped make my cup of coffee. And here's a chapter on the transportation it requires to get coffee to, you know, the truck that drives the, the beans and the boat. So there's a whole chapter on transportation and I was able to break it down into very uh, manageable chunks. And, and this book on fact-checking my life, I couldn't, 
I, I just couldn't get the structure uh, correct. I just hearing the the premise, if I were, um, if I imagine myself as having the assignment to write that book, I can feel like literally in my body, I can feel the anxiety, like the, the tension and the discomfort. And, and exactly. I, I remember Tony Robbins, when you go back to him, that he suggested one time uh, in a seminar I attended that if we question anything, we can erode our belief in it like literally anything. And conversely, we can generate certainty at like with at will, right. kind of like what we were saying, you know, that quote um, from Bertrand Russell, which is amazing that it, I believe it is possible for us to say, I believe this, even in the absence of evidence, in the absence of agreement, I choose to believe. Right. And I think it's terrifying to realize that we have that freedom and ability, yes, you know, it is. Well, the, both sides are very scary and dangerous, I think, because, yeah, if you are radically skeptic and say no one knows anything, you know, I'm not going to listen to scientists or doctors because what do they know? Then I think that's a disaster for society. But on the other hand, if you never question anything and believe anything, someone, uh, you know, a, a cable pundit says that's also terrible. So yeah. it's this very tricky middle ground. Yeah, absolutely. And yet beautiful. I think that if you say, you know, and I believe this as a coach, uh, that you have all of your own answers inside you, that the truth, your truth is available to you in every moment. But then the question is, you know, can you hear it and how do you have to live so that you can, and then do you have the courage to follow it? And what would that mean? And, and, and so forth. But I'm I'm a little afield. Let me let me come back to the to the book <laughs> and your creative process because you talk about structure as being important in in your in your own work and life. But when it comes like when it came to the puzzler, how did you chunk out? Like, did you sit in a room alone for a while with sticky notes, or did you, you know, like just have other one of these brainstorming sessions one time? Like, how did you come up with the structure? How did you have enough? certainty on what your structure was to proceed with the research and the writing versus, cause I know right. this can be a, a kind of a trap for us as creatives is that it's like, well, it's not baked enough to go actually do the research or do the drafting. Mm. Right. It's, but right. how did you firm it up enough for yourself to go do the work that became the finished book? Well, that's a good question. And I think the answer is it, it evolved and I had to keep an open mind and say, this structure is constantly changing, uh, which it did. And, uh, you know, I had, I had a chapter on Tangrams, this great Chinese puzzle, but it ended up not making the book. And I think a lot of it, since we as humans love stories, a lot of it was related to what kind of puzzles can I find people with the best stories, like these amazing, like, say it's, I found one woman obsessed with this puzzle at the CIA and she moved across the country to be closer to it. Like that's a good story because people do need, they need color. They need human, uh, you know, human drama and conflict and joy. So that played into it and it was, it was fluctuating right to the end. Well, talking about storytelling, <clears throat> will you say a little about this? I, I realized this might be kind of granular for, for some people who really are interested in writing, I think they might value this. So, and I'm personally curious, but when it comes to storytelling, right, there's that old adage of show, don't tell, mm. right. But as our, as 
as people who are trying to recapture and convey other people's experiences, we acknowledge we weren't there. So it's not up to us to be literary about the sky was this color and, you know, the wind was doing this. So we're not trying necessarily in a literary way to recreate and share the experience. But where I'm trying to go with this is how do you, as one who's weaving stories into your work, go beyond merely telling a story and do your best to like give it dimension, give it depth, give it interest and not just say, well, she, this happened, then this happened and this happened. And maybe that's right. times, but how do you actually make it come alive? I guess that uh, there are, there are two almost opposing methods I use. One is to go very, very granular, small, and one is to go very big. So for, if I'm interviewing someone who like say they were struck by lightning uh, and they say, yeah, I was eating lunch. I would, I would, in my interview, I'd say, what, what were you having? Oh, a sandwich. What kind of sandwich? Oh, a ham and cheese. Was it on rye? So then I get all of these nice details, which are good for the reader. So you've got all these details. Um, but then it can't just be a list of details. It has to have the bigger meaning, which is how did they feel? What were they thinking? So then I'll step back and say, okay, so how did it feel? What did it feel like? Give me a metaphor. Like, did it feel like you know, you got a hundred cases of COVID at the same time. Did it feel like you were, you know, crushed by a, a, a falling dumpster? Who, what, give me a good metaphor. So it's a combination of very um, specific details and big thoughts often, uh, uh, and feelings often expressed with a metaphor. Hmm. Right on. And then how do you know, I mean, maybe this is kind of intuitive as you get into the writing, but as you mapping out the outline and, and the structure of chapters and things like that, do you, how do you know where to put the stories in? Do you try to use them as interest grabbers at the opening of chapters or to prove a point or something? How do you, how do you use a story once you've identified it as something you want to include? Mm, I love that. Well, one of the methods of solving puzzles that I talk about is start with the easiest part. Uh, so when you see a crossword puzzle and you have no idea what to do, find that one there, clue that you actually, and then build out from there. So if I have a great story, like, you know, say I have a great story about Rubik's cubes, this woman who like Rubik's cubes saved her life. Cause she, she had, um, you know, her hands were paralyzed and she was able to use the Rubik's cube to, uh, you know, another one that's like a movie uh, to cure her illness. But uh, so I have that and I'm like, okay, I'm starting with that. I know that's going to be in there. Now, where do I build it? How do I intro it? How do I outro it? Where does it fit in? Here are five ideas I want to cover. I know that this Rubik's cube is really compelling and maybe the most compelling part. And it may end up that it's the opening because it grabs people, but it may end up that I open and, and then lead into it. And I don't think there's one right answer. I think uh, I try to remind myself, you know, there's no one perfect way to write this chapter. There's, uh, it, it, you know, it all depends on uh, dozens of factors. And, and one person could love it this way. Another person could love it that way. So I don't see it as like a life and death decision that yeah. this has to be here and that has to be there. But, uh, but starting with what I know for, well, I shouldn't say for sure, because we've been talking about, <laughs> yeah. but what I, what I know I really do want to include, and then building out from there. With these stories that you include, 
How much do you involve the subject of the story after the fact? Do you provide them a little draft and say, Hey, did I capture this right? Do you ask them for a, a release, like a legal release? Um, how, how do you just do the interview and write it and then publish it? Like, how does that all unfold usually? Well, I know a lot of nonfiction writers have different uh, strategies. Uh, I mean, if I were writing like an expose of the White House, of course, I wouldn't send it to them. But I'm writing a book about the joy of puzzles, and I want to relay the truth. And uh, so I do send them. I say, I interview them, I write it up, and then I say, here's what I wrote. Does this look accurate to you? And weirdly, more often than not, they improve the, uh, so it's not a negative. They'll actually say, well, actually, you know, I don't have that book on my desk. I have this book. And, and the book they provide is, is funnier and weirder than the one that I had, had spotted. So often it improves it. Not always. Sometimes they'll say, please don't say that. You know, it'll get me in trouble with my boss and I'm not out to get anyone fired. So I, um, yeah, I, I am of the, uh, the type that who actually sends it to him. But again, like if I were doing hard journalism, that is very frowned upon. Yeah, that makes sense. And then talking about, um, just a moment ago, you said something that um, reminded me, I think we talked about this last time too, about your process as you near the, uh, the uh, having some kind of a finished draft, some kind of a draft to share that you do have a group of readers that mm. you invite to, to read, to comment, to talk about if anything wasn't clear or what they like or what they don't like. And I think you even use a spreadsheet to track this or you have in the past. I have in the gap for this one. Yes. I find reader feedback incredibly helpful and actually is one of the downsides of being a writer um and why i'm jealous of you because you know when you're interviewing people you can kind of get immediate feedback on whether the question sparks something exciting or or just makes their eyes glaze over but i don't get any feedback for a month so i have to go out of my way to i'll write a few chapters and i'll select 10 or 15 people i trust and I send it to them, but I make very specific requests because if I just said, do you like this? They're my friends. They're going to say they liked it, even if they didn't. So I ask them, uh, what, which are the five chapters you found most interesting and which are the five you found least interesting? And then I can use that data because if, you know, 12 of them say, well, this chapter is kind of slow. I know that's not a fluke. That is something to work on. Now I will say it's worked better in the past for this book on puzzles, since it consists of 20 different chapters of 20 kinds of puzzles, people just like the kind of puzzle that they like. So if, you know, the crossword lovers are like, Oh, I love the crossword chapter. The Sudoku lovers were like, Oh, the Sudoku was my favorite. So it ended up not being all that helpful this time. Uh, but in, in years past, it has been invaluable. Yeah. You know, it reminds me, I once heard um, Jack Canfield talk about his process of collecting and sharing stories. And when he wrote chicken soup for the soul, that he did this with a group of kind of beta readers, you might call it. And he said that he knew that most readers don't finish a book before they talk about it to their friends, right? They'll talk mm. about it as soon as they start reading it. And so he very deliberately front end loaded 
chicken soup for the soul with the most moving or the, the stories that his beta readers said, these were the best. Mm, yeah, and I so think people would get into it and immediately tell their friends, oh, you've got to buy this book. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> think, smart. That's wise. He, yeah. uh, that's some wisdom from Jack Canfield. Absolutely. Yeah. Tell me if you will about the difference between the odd. Okay. Actually, let me pause that because I'm super curious about you've actually not just written a book about puzzles. You've actually made a puzzle. I feel like I, I should have with this earlier. And it's got a cash price, 10 grand, right? Yes. Uh, I'm afraid by the time this airs, it probably won't be available. Um, but I'm, it's still a great story. And you can still solve the puzzles, even if you don't get the cash prize. Because the finals begin, uh, and you can cut this out if you want. The finals begin Saturday, June 4th. And okay. they're probably going to be over soon. But yes, this I was very excited about. Because as a kid, I read this book called Masquerade, and it was a British book by this artist with these weird, beautiful illustrations of people dressed up in rabbit suits and uh, having, you know, dancing with the moon. And those illustrations contain hints to an actual buried treasure somewhere in England, uh, a golden rabbit sculpture. And people went nuts. It caused a craze, a mania. Like people were digging up yards and, you know, trespassing all over England. Uh, but I still, I remembered it. And so I thought when I wrote a book about puzzles, I'm like, I want to do that. I, I don't want to have people dig up their neighbor's yard because I don't want to be sued. But I like the idea of hiding a secret puzzle in the book. So uh, the introduction to the book actually contains a secret puzzle, which leads to a code word. And the introduction is available on the puzzlerbook.com website, the puzzlerbook.com for free. So you don't have to buy the book. I hope you will, because I think it's fun, but you don't have to. And, um, and if you find the passcode, that's where the real craziness starts, because you put the passcode into the website and it opens up to a suite of about 30 puzzles that are so, I didn't write them. These people who are some of the best puzzle makers in the world wrote these puzzles and they are bizarre and delightful and challenging and weird. And, you know, they are like, you think it's a crossword puzzle, but then it turns out to be some other kind of puzzle. Uh, so I, uh, I highly recommend people try and do it with friends though. Because like I was saying, it's a communal thing. And these puzzles are sometimes so challenging. It really helps to have different points of view. That's such a fun, <clears throat> such a fun concept. Once the, once um, the finals are over, will you publish the code so people can just go do the 30 puzzles? Yes, yes, exactly. So everything will remain open. You won't be able to win the $10,000, but you can do all the puzzles. And yes, if you go to the puzzlerbook.com, uh, it will, it will give you hints to the code. If you really want to, you can just say, just give me the code. And then you can put that in and, and it'll open up to the puzzles. All right. Um, that's fun. Will you tell me about the difference between, uh, the audiobook and the printed book? And I love that you read the audiobook as well. Oh, so yes, every, I did. Yeah. Not everyone uh, reads his or her own books, but, but you do. And then you changed the way that you do kind of the end content of each chapter. Right. They, uh, the book contains tons of puzzles, both old and new, like the oldest, whatever the oldest 
uh, crossword puzzle. But a lot of those puzzles are visual and it's very hard to reproduce. We do provide a PDF that you can download when you buy the audio puzzle. But I felt I felt bad for the audio listeners that they aren't getting this experience of solving puzzles in the middle uh, of reading the book. So I spent and I didn't get paid for this, so it might have been a waste of my time, but I hope not. The, I spent a long time coming up, collecting, curating and creating audio puzzles. So a lot, you know, riddles are very good audio puzzles, um, but they're also ones sort of like name that noise type of puzzles. Uh, and I have gotten nice feedback, although I did do one riddle that uh, I've gotten probably 10 emails saying there's an alternate answer. Do you want to hear it? You might've heard this riddle. What is it? It is um, uh, a, a, a bear goes one mile south, one mile east, and one mile north, and comes back to the same place. What color is the bear? So I do remember that from that, uh, that there's only one place on earth that you can follow those instructions. So the bear must be, a, it must be white. It must be a polar bear. However, exactly. There's apparently an alternate answer. What, what's the alternate answer? <laughs> well, the alternate answer is, yeah, it, it was... Um, the real answer is the North Pole because oh, they the go North, the North Pole. Yeah, right. They go down and east and then north, and it's almost like an arc. That's the only place where you'll end up with the same. You don't even have to make a square; you make a triangle. Problem is, it also works at the South Pole. Uh, so I got like ten puzzlers. Like you know, it also works. And my <laughs> my well actually to their well actually is. Yeah, but the South Pole doesn't have uh, have polar bears. So there you go. It's probably not the South Pole unless you import the polar bears. <laughs> That's great. Uh, okay, so I'm just looking at the creative questions I had. We talked about outlines. We talked about how you don't allow puzzles to get in the way of your productivity. Oh, this. In your acknowledgments, you mentioned that Karen, Karen and Chloe, do I have that right, Harris? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That they read this out loud. Will right. you tell me why and what the, what the benefit of that was? Well, that's a good friend of mine. His name is Kieran Harris and his wife, Chloe. He's actually a podcast producer for um, uh, a podcast called 80,000 Hours, which is affiliated with Effective Altruism, which is all about how do we do good best, which is a fascinating uh, movement. And I love it. And he's great, but he is... Uh, He's also super supportive. So they would read the chapters out to each other and make note of when the other person laughed. And that's important data for me. And I will say they weren't the only ones who read it out loud. I read it out loud a couple of times to myself because at least my style, I like to have it a bit conversational. Now, that's not the only writing style. I think you know, some people write beautifully and in long, literate sentences that are not conversational. Uh, and so this might not work for them. But for me, I like to have my book be a conversation with the reader. So reading it out loud is hugely helpful. And I bet if I read it now, I would change like a thousand things if I yeah. read it out loud. It's just you've got to give it up at some point. There's no perfection. You just got to get it out there. Yeah. What's that saying that books are never finished, only published? 
yeah, I love that saying. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm with you. But re- when I heard the first guest I ever heard talk about reading a manuscript aloud was uh, Donald Robertson, who wrote How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, Stoic Wisdom. And he said that he paid someone in his neighborhood to come over and read it. And of course, it took like eight or 10 hours. But hearing it, just hearing it out loud can help you become aware of things or change right. the, the pacing or the rhythm and things. So I was interested when I read that you had people. Well, first of all, though, that is fascinating to have someone else read it. I have never tried that, but you have inspired me. I'm going to, I'm all about experiments. So I'm going to see, yeah. maybe that's an even better way if it's someone else reading it out loud. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I, someone else, another guest of mine, and I know this is a little different from hearing another human do it. And I think there's personally, I think there's value in that, but something I've started doing because another guest of mine said that Microsoft Word actually has a feature where it will read aloud. Wow. So I actually use that every week when I write my newsletter to just see, and that helps me, you know, how hard it is to edit your own stuff. That's the closest to like, boom, typos. Thank you. I'm going to try that. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Love it. Well, with that, we have covered, I feel confident. This is, yeah, this is um, an interview. I've asked you, I've been thinking and looking forward to this for a few weeks. So I've I've had my list of questions and you have answered them all. So I'm confident that I only have like one or two, you know, the French call staircase wit (laughs) (laughs) on the way out. Um, But I'm, I'm confident I only have one or two questions. I'll wish I had asked when I'm on my way home. Well, you know what? You don't have to wish I will happily get back on and you can. You're amazing. uh, Yeah. Well, I will just end uh, with the question that, you know, as a coach, I'm actually not a fan of advice, but I don't have a word that I, th- that I like better, at least in this application. So <laughs> I'm just kind of voicing that. Um, but what advice or what encouragement or what would you say to anybody listening who is either in the act of, they're in the, they're in the arrow <laughs> of their mm, own book. Right, right, right. Or they, it's a dream they've had for a long time that for whatever reason they haven't really committed to. What do you say to people in that situation who are aspiring to get their own book done? Interesting. Okay. Well, first of all, it's funny you bring up advice because I did tweet a couple of weeks ago saying, I'm going to write an advice column called, um, here's, some, here's some stuff that worked for me. It may or may not work for you. (laughs) It hasn't been tested scientifically and probably never will, but maybe you'll find it good. Maybe it'll be counterproductive, but here you go. It's (laughs) a little bit of a long book subtitles. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So I don't think that would be a successful advice column, but yes, my, what has worked for me is to uh, be, you know, embrace not embrace, if, if you can't embrace, at least tolerate re- rejection and failure because it is such a part. And I, as a starting writer, you know, I was like, you know, 99.5% of things would get rejected or, or not even rejected. They wouldn't even respond. And I'm still, the majority of stuff I pitch, I get rejected, even though I, I've been doing this for so long and I've had some level of success. It's just that there's only so many places and there's so many great ideas that, uh, that it's hard. So just know that it's not personal. It's just that, you know, there's a, a glut of stuff and just keep on sending it out, being okay with rejection. And, and also, uh, even if you don't feel it's finished, 
send it to some friends and get their feedback. Uh, and uh, because that way it's almost, I feel uh, if I never did that, if I waited until it was done, as we say, it'll never happen. It'll never be done. So even just forcing myself to send, you know, 80% written stuff with a lot of like um, TKs is what we use in journalism, which means to come, which means like, I'm going to fill this in later, you know, paragraph TK. I send that out to friends and say, sorry, it's not completely done, but I, am I in the right direction or do you think I should switch? Uh, to me, that's very motivating. Right on. Okay. Well, things that have worked for you that might or might not work for you, <laughs> dear reader. That's awesome. All right. Well, again, my guest today, AJ Jacobs, his latest book, The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever from Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. AJ, it's been so fun. It's, thank you for making time to talk with me again. Oh, my, my pleasure. Brilliant. I'll come on anytime you want. It was, uh, it was a delight. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's transformational coaching program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself, in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.